You're listening to the Boots About Business podcast. We share stories from military veterans that have transitioned to the world of business. On the show, you'll hear conversations with business leaders, executives, and entrepreneurs that all started their careers wearing boots in the service of the U.S. Armed Forces. This podcast is equal parts about sharing great stories, helping veterans, helping businesses, and fostering a greater understanding of the value veterans can bring to business. And welcome, everybody, to episode number 10 of the Boots About Business podcast. I am your host, Frank Strong, and here with us today is Bill Williams. Bill is a Vietnam veteran, and he served in the Army. He had a long career in the business world after that, and today he runs a small company called Axiom Advisors that helps corporate refugees and veterans, particularly retiring military, move into franchise ownership. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Frank. I'm happy to be here. I have a ton of questions to ask you about franchise ownership, but before we get to that, let's spend a few minutes on one of the uniting themes of the show, and that is your time in service. Mm -hmm. What caused you to join the service? (laughs) Way back then, there was this thing called a draft, and I I was in college, and I'd go to college, I'd go to class one semester, and then I'd go part time the next semester. I was in and out because I really was searching for what I wanted to do or some searching for something that would capture my imagination. And unfortunately I was in one of those uh, part-time phases and uh, you know, I was uh, classified as one a, so I asked, okay, what does that mean? And they said probably 90 days. So I left the selective service office and walked down the hallway and I hit every recruiter except the coast guard that was there. And, you know, the army ended up having a uh, a class or a uh, job it sounded really interesting. I was in, I was looking to get into the the airline industry, and particularly flight mm-hmm. operations. And and uh, the Army had a, a flight operations MOS, which I later found out a couple of years later that it was one digit off from being clerk typist. But you know it sounded good. So anyway, so I started taking tests and physicals and bingo bango bongo. There I was in Fort Leonard Wood. You know, in the middle of winter, a private E1 uh, going through basic training. So, yeah. So you thought uh, you were going to get drafted anyway. You decided yep. to, you were going to shape your destiny a bit. Yep. So you, we talked a little about what you did. Where did you go? Like, what was the training sequence and then eventual deployment? Sure. Well, the uh, Fort Leonard Wood for basic training. And then I went to flight operations school at Fort Rucker. And while I was there, that's about when I figured out that. Not that recruiters, you know, distort things, but, you know, the job wasn't exactly what, you know, what I had envisioned. So I applied for OCS. I'd already qualified on all the tests. And, of course, you know, at that time, you know, they needed a lot of second lieutenants for uh, for cannon fodder and, uh, you know, other things. So the standards were pretty low. So anyway, I got in. I went through the boards and got in. Again, back in that time period, they were doing branch-specific officer candidate school. So I ended up going to, as you, people can't see you know, on the recording, that I'm wearing glasses, but I'm very nearsighted. So I ended up going to Fort Eustis, to transportation school, which, uh, you know, was, was very good, you know, and, and uh, fortunate for me. So, you know, officer candidate school, Fort Eustis, six months program there. From there, into a, right into another school for aircraft maintenance, officer's course. And from there to Fort Knox, Fort Knox for close to a year, then deployed to Vietnam, arrived in country just uh, two or three days after Tet Offensive started. So terrible timing, but stayed there a year. You know, I had an option at that point to get out because I'd fulfilled my basic requirement. 
I could get out or I could take a promotion to, to captain to 03. And, you know, I had a year to commit to go regular army or then get out. That was after Vietnam or why yep. when you got that there? Was, that was after Vietnam. Yep. Yeah. After yeah. a year there, I had that. I was uh, ready to uh, ready to get out or, or not. You know, decided to extend a year and take the promotion. And but we already at that point was we saw units starting to be withdrawn, draw down. Yeah. And the army was going to going to reduce in size. So did not have an undergrad degree. So I opted out after after another year and uh, went back and finished my degree. Finally had a purpose. You know, I went back to college. So, yeah. And that the whole time you were training, getting ready, was going to Vietnam was inevitable. Did that have an impact on the training that that you were doing or the environment that you're in? Everybody was kind of thinking about that. I think it. I, well, yeah, I think we all pretty much had a, especially, you know, once I became a junior officer, we all had a pretty uh, a clear picture that we'd end up in Vietnam. Yeah. And, you know, and that was fine. I mean, you know, my father served in World War II. I had you know, two uncles serving in the Army in World War II. So, you know, it was kind of a, I, I kind of expected to be in the service at some point. Yeah. This is a question I ask everyone. What was your worst day in uniform? <laughs> I think the worst day in the Army was in basic training when I learned that I would not be uh, leaving with the rest of my class. Uh, my orders had been uh, somehow you know, screwed up, messed up, mistakes made. I was, you know, I, I enlisted for that flight operations school I mentioned, and my orders came down to be an x-ray technician. And I said, no, 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 this is this is what, you know, private E1, scared to death of the first sergeant, you know, anybody with stripes on their, on their sleeve, right? And, you know, so I said, hey, this is not what I signed up for. So I was held over for two or three days. It wasn't long, just two or three days. And, and they uh, got orders cut and, and ended up down at Fort Rucker. So that was probably the worst day because I couldn't go, I couldn't leave, uh, you know, with my friends or, you know, buddies. Yeah, the guys you'd gone to training with, you thought yeah. you'd deploy together. I yeah. get it. Yeah. So the the inverse of that, what was your best day? Best day was the day I came back uh, stateside to from Vietnam. So yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. I could definitely identify with that. I, I'll <laughs> never forget when the wheels, we flew, uh, I don't know, it was one of those chartered aircraft. Yeah. You know, they had DC-10s shuttling everyone back and forth. And yeah. we, ran, we flew right into Pope Air Force Base at, you know, Fort Bragg and Pope together. But I remember the wheels touching ground, and I thought, oh, man, that was the best day ever. I, <laughs> I can hear you. Yep. What do you think the service taught you? Everything. I think, uh, really, um, self-confidence, uh, having to uh, go through, you know, officer candidate school. was The first day they went, did the routine, you know, look the man your left, look the man your right. You know, six months, one of those men won't be there. You know, so they were, you know, even though they were in need of you know, junior officers, there was still a, a high attrition rate. And, and that was probably about right. I think about 30 percent either dropped out or, or were cut. But so self-confidence from going through that it was extremely, uh, especially the first probably uh, two months or three months. A lot of physical training, so you know, gained a lot of uh, or lost a lot of baby fat, and really became a lot stronger. So physically, mentally, a lot of discipline, organization, be prepared. You know, I mean, think about what you're going to do you know, as much as you can before you do it. And I think a lot of that, I, I know a lot of that carried over into the uh, into the business world mm -hmm, for sure. And and speaking of that, so you talked, you left the service, you wanted to go back and finish your degree. Mm -hmm. So you know, you've had a long career. After the military and business, what's the the cliff note version of that? Then gets us to where you are today. 
Sure. Uh, well, Cliff Notes version joined a, a company and uh, most of my experience in the military was really ended up being in logistics. So joined a company in, you know, in that field in logistics and then was recruited away, luckily, by a, uh, a headhunter and in, in who was looking for working for a technical company. And so I pretty quickly moved into the technology field. Not that I'm a techie by any means, but I worked for technology companies. And so, you know, ended up in Chicago for a number of years and then went through engulf and devour corporate acquisitions and, uh, you know, spinoffs and things like that. Moved to Atlanta in 1987, been here ever since. And again, you know, in technology, in the technology industry, uh, there's always there's constant uh, acquisitions and moves and you know downsizings, upsizings, whatever you mean. And I finally got reached a point where I've had enough of it and didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew I'd had enough of that and went off to uh, work for myself. Mm-hmm. And so that gets us where we want to spend the bulk of the time today. What got you into franchises? You know, tell us a little bit about what you're doing. Sure. And then why franchises? Well, maybe actually, uh, why franchises? Maybe first, one of the things I did in transitioning out of corporate was I worked, you know, for an outplacement firm for well a couple of years, really. And I found I enjoyed that that process of helping people transition from one company to another, one job to another, or or out of corporate role in, into entrepreneurship. I found I was, you know, really was appealing to me. I enjoyed it a great deal. So as I progressed and you know I decided that that's where I wanted to go and I learned about uh, companies that that act as uh, recruiters if you will consultants uh, they're called coaches sometimes for the franchise industry and I invested in a business opportunity and that was 15 years ago and I'm still trying to figure it out so yeah <laughs> so there's probably a lot of folks trying to figure it out and for people that aren't familiar with what a franchise is maybe give us just a a level set a high level explanation of what a franchise is and how it works sure absolutely it well basically it's a a right to use a name and a business model that there were procedures i also like to refer to it as it's kind of like a a entrepreneurship with training wheels because the franchisors uh, the franchise companies really um they don't make any profit until their owners, their franchisees, start to generate revenue. So the more revenue that's generated by the franchisees, the more profitable the franchisor becomes because their share comes from a royalty. So their interest is really in helping their their owners, their franchisees, becoming as successful as possible. So they put a lot of effort into training, a lot of business coaching, very structured process of, of onboarding, evaluation. So... It also harkens back a bit to the military. So, uh, you know, with the systems and procedures and, and all that. Yeah. I mean, and that that's a good question. I, I've observed, and you and I know each other from a local veterans group. We've chatted about this briefly before, but wh- why are franchises, they seem to be inclined towards veterans. Why? There's actually an organization, uh, most franchise companies belong to uh, what's called VetFran. And VetFran is just really an association, national association that offers a discount off the franchise fee. There's, you know, there's cost, there's investments to be made to acquire a franchise. One of the basics is a franchise fee that gives you the right to use the name and gets the training and all that. So the vet friend companies you know, offer 10 to 25% off the franchise fee to uh, bring veterans into their system. You know, the, why do they do that? Because they know veterans are, uh, well, it sounds, you know, 
maybe self-congratulatory, but veterans are a cut above, especially today when you have the all-volunteer military. Veterans are a cut above. They uh, are used to training. They're used to systems. They're used to, I guess, relying on peer relationships and peer support. And so, you know, just in the history of franchising, and you know, veterans have performed very, very well for franchise companies. So they are definitely interested in bringing more of them on board. Yeah. So what actually happens? Someone comes to you, you know, they're, they're retiring from the military or they're getting off active duty. Maybe it's a, you know, an officer, an NCO coming off active duty or someone retiring and they, they seek you out and ask for your advice. What happens next? You know, we have a very, very structured program of or process of trying to figure out who are they? What are they? Uh, we do a disc profile, you know, the yeah. personality profile. Yep. We do in-depth interviews. Uh, we try to find out, you know, what are you interested in? What are you trying to accomplish? What are your goals, near-term, short-term? Or, I mean, I should say short-term and long-term. What are your skills? What are you good at? Maybe what are you not so good at? And is there a vision? Is there Have you had an interest in something? which may or may not be a good thing. So try to build a picture of who this person really is and where they might be a good fit. I mean, there's probably somewhere between 3,500 and 4,000 different franchise brands out there. So try to understand a little bit who they are. Do you steer them towards certain models or are there any that you steer them away from? (laughs) How do you help them narrow that list of 4,000 down to something they want to do? Well, yeah, that's a great question. First of all, our association, our affiliate has probably about 400 under, under contract that we work with. So I work a lot like a recruiter. I know what the profiles are that those franchise companies are looking for, and I try to match them up. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't learn 3,000, you can't learn, you know, 300, but you can learn 30 to 50, you know, pretty well. And you learn an experience, you know, you go through and you learn who are the better performers, who are the, who offer the most support, the better training, et cetera, et cetera. And so do I steer people to those? Yeah, I probably steer people away from certain concepts more than I do towards, you know, like I steer people away from food service. You know, you hear the word franchise, you think fast food, French fries, right? Unless you have a a history in food service, we understand how really challenging and difficult it is. You're willing to work seven days a week, holidays, nights, et cetera. And the margins are very, very uh, tight. The people who make a lot of money in the food service industry are those that have multiple locations, 10, 20, 30, 40, you know, one or two, it's going to be a grind, a real grind. So I try to, you know, steer people away from that. And there's the service industry, service to consumers, service to businesses. Those are easier to get into, uh, require less investment. And you go for things that are not fads, because fads are going to wear out in a couple of years, but they're going to be a a need or a trend uh, going forward. So I probably over explained all of that, but uh, uh, I confused people. But uh, no, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. Let me ask, what are some of the the benefits and drawbacks of a franchise for veterans? Benefits are the structured training, the support that you get, the fact that they, they need you to succeed, you know, to grow and to be a part of something. I think, you know, from the military, like you mentioned, we belong to a, a common veterans group. There's a camaraderie that you have with other veterans. And that camaraderie among business owners, let's say you own a Crawl Space Ninja, which is a great little brand. There's a camaraderie among the owners of that brand, you know, that uh, the military, you know, veteran will feel at home in. You know, the negative side, you know, the 
probably uh, if someone is a real seat of the pants entrepreneur that can't work within a system, that can't follow a system, and I've seen it, you know, I've, I've had clients and I've had other friends who, who, who tried it. If you're a real seat of the pants entrepreneur, then franchising is not for you because you got to you got to stay within the system. You know, they will take input and, you know, uh, from owners and, and to make changes, things like that. But you really have to execute the system. And some people just want to be, uh, or they're too free, uh, you know, free and easy and, and uh, rather rather go different ways. So you got to work within it. So, Yeah, this isn't one of the questions that we talked about, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway, because I was thinking about it and I think it's important. But there's something out there known as a manager model franchise. Is that mm-hmm. something that you work around and maybe describe that a little bit? Well, there's sure there's different models. I mean, there's there's the owner operator, which you know, let's say you know you're on the truck, you're driving the truck, and you're doing the work. There's the uh, manager model where you you are the manager of the business. You hire the truck drivers, you know, the and the technicians, and you assign work, delegate, and and uh, market appropriately. There's something called semi-passive which is really where you hire more of a general manager where you check in maybe once a week or a couple of times a week, but the manager runs the day-to-day operations and they do whatever it takes, you know, is directed by you to run the business and make the business profitable. You know, there's are people who maybe want to retain employment. You might look at, at a semi-passive model like that because they can keep their day job, so to speak and have a business growing on the side. And then you have the totally passive model where you never touch the business. You basically are an investor and you trust in the system to make it work for you. So, you know, you know, there's a scale and uh, depends on, you know, what you want to do. You can start as an owner operator, hands-on. You can move then up the manager toll and then to the semi-passive role, probably not to the t- completely passive, but, uh, or you can get to where you like, where you're comfortable, where you're having uh, your life is good and stay right there. Yeah, that's a great jumping off point, talking about the different types of models they have. We, you mentioned they all require some level investment, right? Yeah, absolutely. The franchise has some kind of upfront cost. What, what are those typically? Well, it's part of the process that we we interview and we we ask for a personal financial statement. You know, how much is in savings, how much is, is in the bank stocks, investments, you know, general guidelines are people who want to look into a franchise ownership should have at least $50,000 liquid, you know, available to invest, uh, should have a net worth of, I'd say at least 150, 200,000. If you have home ownership, that's, that's really not too hard. They should have uh, not a lot of debt and they should have a good credit score. Uh, that opens up a lot of things. Now, you know, if you have more cash available, seventy-five to hundred. That just opens up more choices, you know, for you to to consider. So yeah, so you're talking about financing a lot of these fees. Yeah, in today's climate, you know, the COVID nineteen world we're living in, boy, interest rates are very very low. Somebody's got good credit, you know, and and have uh, some home equity or something like that, they can get business loans uh, at very very attractive interest rates to help them get into business. So. You know, and, you know, again, there are companies, there are, the SBA has what they call a Patriot Express loan, uh, which is designed for veterans so that theoretically, you know, it'll take less time to get approved and, and uh, funded. You know, you can fund a business that way. Mm-hmm. And we had a fellow on a couple of shows ago that talked a little bit about that program. Okay. So we talked about, you know, 
typically you like to see somebody with some, you know, $50,000 in liquidity and savings and a, a certain net worth value. Like, is there a, a range that franchise fees typically fall in for startup costs? You know, is it fifteen thousand dollars open one up? Is it does it take the whole fifty thousand to open it up? What is a yeah? It's kind of a typical number. Okay, well, that's a good question. Well, the, the reason we give that that range is that you have to pay the franchise fee, and that's usually paid up front in cash, and that can range from I would say generally fifteen to twenty five thousand for a single unit or single territory. Yeah. You know, probably closer to 2025 and the rest of it, you know, could be startup costs. I mean, you've got to have something to live on. You know, I, I mean, boy, if you have a married couple, you know, and, and the spouse is employed, that's perfect world for a franchise company to look at somebody. And, uh, you know, so you got to, I think the greatest danger is thinking that you're going to be able to take money out of a business, any business you know, startup, early plan on six, 12, 18 months before you can start taking money out of a business to pay yourself. So that's, that's part of, part of the savings, part of, you know, part of that net worth that we look for. Yeah. So it's not just the cost to buy the franchise, but you've got to have a little runway for yourself to pay your own bills. Yeah. And you may need to, I mean, you may need a vehicle, you may, you need marketing materials, you may need to hire one or two employees or something like that. And you got to, got to generate revenue to pay them or you got to be able to pay them. So yeah, that helps. Yep. Got it. So, I mean, obviously you have to earn a living in this process too. How is it that you get paid? I get paid like a realtor. You know, I, I mentioned our, our affiliate, the International Franchise Professionals Group. They get the contracts with the franchise companies. They set the commission rates. And part of, I think, is an advantage of the franchise industry is that very heavily regulated by the Federal Trade Commission. So, if you walk through the front door of a franchise and sign an agreement, you will pay the franchise fee, $20,000. If you come through, you know, someone like me, you will pay the same franchise fee, $20,000. You know, I get paid a portion of that franchise fee, you know, that's already predetermined. So I don't control it and it doesn't cost the client or the prospect a dime. Because Again, I think uh, FTC has, has done a good job there in protecting people from uh, who want to explore this and want to get into it, they're not going to have to pay a commission to anybody. So it's kind of like a realtor, kind of like a recruiter. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, it's probably a good idea to hit up someone like you with the experience, especially if it doesn't cost you anything. Yeah, no, it doesn't. Um, You might as well talk to someone about it. Yeah. We provide a lot of education, you know, about the industry and, and how to look at an opportunity, how to, you know, how to ask the right questions how to make the evaluation. So, you know, it's a lot of of what we do is educating our clients on just the whole process. And, you know, I've talked people out of doing it as well. They're they're not well suited for the franchise world or they don't have enough capital resources. They're better off finding the job and and maybe, you know, maybe forever or, or, you know, remain as an employee or save up money for five, 10 years and then then take another look at it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So one of the things I was thinking about as you were telling us is that um, you build a business, you now have an asset that you can sell. Can people mm-hmm. sell their franchise once they've built it? Yes. Yeah. Uh, you have the right to sell the contract that you sign to another individual, but that individual has to be uh, approved by the franchise company. So you know they, they want to make sure that you're bringing in somebody that just is good or better than you are. So uh, they have the right of final approval, but yes, you do. You can sell that agreement, that business. Yeah. Interesting. 
All right. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. Is there anything that you would add to what we talked about today, Bill, that veterans maybe need to think about? Well, I, you know, I suppose maybe one or two quick points. You know, on the startup costs, it's got to be looked at as an investment. I know you're playing with words there, but people have a tendency to assume that I can, you, know, you can start a business from scratch and for less money and you can put into, you know, a franchise. And it's true, you can start, but can you grow it and get it established as quickly and with the same success rate, you know, unless you put the, that amount of money into it. So, you know, I, I've been doing this 15 years and uh, I've been into a lot of networking groups and I've seen, you know, entrepreneurs and startups and all that. And you really, you know, you're going to end up investing about the same amount of money to make a start, you know, a ground, you know, start the business in the garage thing or in a franchise, you know, no matter which way you go in order to be successful, you know? So that's number one. And number two is, be careful about what do you like, what don't you like. Be careful about, gee, I like ice cream or gee, I like pizza or uh, wouldn't it be fun to own, to own a golf store? And if you look into the SBA default rates on, on loans, ice cream and uh, pizza and golf retail stores are some of the highest failure rates, you know, because huh. people think it'll be fun. Instead of going into it, you know, thinking as a business, what am I trying to accomplish? What do I what do I want my lifestyle to be like? What are my goals five years out, 10 years out, you know, and work towards that? Because there's a lot of a lot of different ways to get there as long as you enjoy the business, believe in the business, believe in the people behind the business, that'll help you get there. Yeah, that's fantastic. If someone has a question for you, where can they find you online? Well, LinkedIn, or you can, uh, my, our, our website, axiom.com, A-X-X-I-O-M.com. We're on, there are three of us are, that are on there. And, you know, we'll be happy to, to help people take a look at things. Okay. Yeah, we'll put those in the show notes. Bill, thank you so much for your service. Thanks for coming on the show and sharing your experiences and, uh, you know, helping veterans uh, to stand up some businesses. It's a really interesting concept. Yeah, it's not for everybody, but if somebody really wants to have control over their career, being your own boss is the way to go. Thanks for the opportunity, Frank. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Boots About Business podcast. Please know you can subscribe to this podcast wherever you catch your podcasts. And while you are there, won't you leave us a nice review? It'll help the show and in turn help other veterans. Finally, if you know someone that's a veteran in business or is an entrepreneur with a story to share, hit us up using the contact form on the show's website. That's bootsaboutbusiness.com. That's all one word, bootsaboutbusiness.com. Until next time, I am your host, Frank Strong, out here.